Well, good morning, fellowship. If you're visiting with us here, come to the second installment of about uh, five messages that we've entitled, uh, Thinking Right About What's Going Wrong. And uh, just to rewind a little bit here, every, every approach to life is based upon a set of presuppositions. And when Christians get themselves into trouble, we get ourselves into trouble when we bifurcate or compartmentalize uh, our lives. This is my Bible time, and here are the issues in the culture. And we don't put these underneath this. And so, in order to really understand where we're going with this series, this is not just some little running commentary about the issues in society, but we've decided to, to approach this from how do kingdom people think, how do decidedly biblical framework people think about the issues that's confronting us. And I could get a bit of a hobby horse, but this would take us to the wrong place. One of my, one of my deep angst and fears over the last 20 years of watching us Christians engage the culture is that we, we engage the culture far too much by cliches or by what our favorite other preacher says or but what our favorite magazine will say or this kind of thing. And we parrot those terms without pouring it through a grid of our own decidedly biblical framework. And that means everything. And so, as a result, you have Christians who are hostile and those who are so far on this side and the cross gets lost and all of that. And so it's, it's our approach in this series to think in terms of framework. That's the reason why last week the entire message was, how do kingdom people think? How do we think? And you got to decide how to think. That sounds weird, but you got to decide how to think and what's that framework. We believe that God exists and he's revealed himself in 66 books of the Bible. And the Bible's not good advice to guide us in life, but is a standard by and through, we live, through which we live all of our lives and all of the issues in life and all that takes place in life is seen from that, from that perspective. And so that's where we're going. And today, I'm going to talk about homosexuality. Uh, what does God think about homosexuality? Now, having said that, let me get back and say, once again, good morning, fellowship. And I just forgot to tell you something earlier on that they'll get me if I don't. Exciting opportunity uh, this May. We're going, May 2016, going back to Israel. You all have heard, heard me say this. You know, <clears throat> if I had a mountain of money, I'd, I'd, I'd pay everybody, every Christian I know, I'd pay their way to Israel. Uh, I think every follower of Christ ought to go to Israel before they die and go to heaven. So you can read your Bible in high definition. It is just extraordinary. And uh, so if you've been thinking about that and wondering about that, uh, this would be a great opportunity. I don't know if there's a better investment in terms of your own walk with the Lord and biblical framework than to come and join us. And so you can call the church office uh, and just ask for Bob Rowland's office, and they'll, they'll, they'll take, it, take it from there. I do need to acknowledge this. Normally I don't say these kinds of things about how I'm feeling here. I have a, I have a cold, and, and I, I can't hear Really, I, can, I don't even know how loud I'm talking this morning right here. So my wife was in the first service, and so we had a little code thing. She was over there. If, if I needed up the volume, she was going to go like this. So turn it down, she was going to go like that. But that was, and, uh, <clears throat> but she's not here. And uh, so 
you all just fall asleep and we'll see what happens here. Okay. Father, thank you for the grace of God. Thank you for your love and mercy. Thank you for uh, the fact that you have us alive at this moment in history. This is an exciting time, Father, because you've placed us here. Uh, we're not here to bemoan the circumstances of society. We're not here, Lord, to uh, beat up on people, but we're here to represent the gospel and what the gospel has to say during our journey down here. And so, Father, I pray that you'll speak to our hearts. Um, Lord Jesus, we pray for gospel balance. We pray, Lord, for insight. We pray, Lord, that you will direct us. We need you. These folks don't need to hear my miscellaneous ramblings about anything. But, Father, you have answers that you want us to deliver in the name of Jesus during this time. So help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible, I want you to meet me in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter chapter 6. I chose this as an anchor text because of an interesting tension that this text has that in a way represents the delightful tension we ought to have when we think about the issue of homosexuality, the LGBT community, and all of the, all of the other, other issues that flow out of that. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning at verse 9. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says in verse 11, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. Do you see that delightful tension there? Now, if you do these things, continue to do them, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. But the good news is, such were some of you. As I approach this issue today, I'm I'm well well aware of the fact that uh, some of you are not going to like how I approach this today, there are some here perhaps would want me to wave a flag and to be a little bit more confrontational about this issue, uh, to rail on our country and where we're going morally and that kind of thing, and certainly we can do that. There are prophetic words about that, but I'm not going to go there this, today. That's not going to be my demeanor. Um, God has done a work in my heart and life over the last seven, eight, nine years as I've read and studied and and not only just read and studied this issue, but uh, friends of mine and others that I've interacted who are part of the lesbian and gay community. And just seeing where we've come from, it's forced me to go back to Scripture and find out what the Bible actually says about all of these issues. Let me tell you a little story. I started not to share this, but I, I will. Um, some time ago, <clears throat> there's this bank that we do business with, and I was there in the bank, and I went to the teller. There's a new teller there, and as, as I went to this young man, um, let's just put it this way. He, he had exaggerated mannerisms. Um, he was obviously, 
uh, in the gay community. And I just got to be transparent with you. Uh, you know, and I, I, I thought I didn't have these issues. But when I saw them, I, I just remember the conversation in my head. I'm going, oh, come on, man. Really, does it have to be all this? You know, what's up with this? Why do you have to exaggerate? And I'm, I'm thinking all of this and just kind of giving them my stuff and, and leaving. And this conversation is going on in my head. Maybe you all not like that. I get in my car and I'm still thinking this way. Come on. I mean, what, really? Seriously? And I, I'll never forget this. Almost immediately, this was unreal. It's like, like that. Tears began to fill my eyes. I felt something before I thought it through. And it was as if the Holy Spirit said to me, Crawford, who do you think you are? Just who do you think you are? He's created in the image of God. And he deserves to be treated with dignity, respect, and love. And so as we approach these issues, I, I want to warn us, don't make the denunciation your demeanor. This is a growing segment in our society. I don't even need to say that. In fact, no one knows how fast it's growing. I was on the internet this past week, and the numbers, are, stats are flying all over the place. Uh, at the high end, uh, uh, the latest Gallup poll says that there's uh, somewhere in the low 20%, 22, 23% of the population in the United States would identify themselves as a member of the, of the LGBT community. Uh, that's a little high. Uh, others are down to like 5 or 6%. Who knows? But here's, here's the issue. Here's the issue. Whatever the percentages may be, the influence is picking up a tidal wave. I mean, it, it's, it's moving. And and it's dominating our culture, and it is growing. Some of the most well-known people and prominent people in our culture um, have identified themselves as gay or lesbian. Robin Roberts, you know, I, I'm not saying anything. She's open about that. Uh, Anderson Cooper is open about his uh, sexuality. And I could name other names, and, and it's just obvious. It's become mainstream. This is who we are. This is what we're all about. Uh, you have to embrace us, like us. This is, this is the norm. And what makes this message today a little bit of an ouchie is that all of us in here, including yours truly, have uh, friends and family members and associates and people that we love deeply who identify themselves as part of the gay and lesbian community. People that we know. Some of you wouldn't bring some of your loved ones here today because you're afraid of what I was going to say that might alienate them or hurt them or make it hard for you to interact with them. And so that's where we all live. That's where we all live. But what, what does God have to say about this issue that demands... Insight. It's screaming to us. And too often we, 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 uh, we codify our feelings and we, we make how we feel about 
um, our relationships and how we feel about our gay friends and how we feel they should be treated, we make a conclusion about that and then we make a foray into the Bible to see if we can make the Bible say how we think it should say and how we feel about that. But what does it actually say? What does it actually say? I want to speak to five fundamental questions. In a sense, I've been studying this thing for about two years. But I, I want to speak to five fundamental questions. And I, I, I think, and, and uh, don't, don't get me wrong, I, I hate to hear speakers when they say the six insights or the seven things. It's probably more than six, probably more than seven. But these, these are five fundamental questions that, uh, that I think the issue from a biblical perspective um, needs to be addressed. The first question is this, it's the obvious one, and so let's get it out there. Is homosexuality wrong? Is it wrong? Uh, I don't feel like it's wrong, and how could it be wrong when this person is so nice that I know? And uh, Is it wrong? Is it wrong? Hang in there with me, because some of you are not going to like what I'm going to say here. Obviously, it's wrong. I'll say that up front, the relieve the tension, and... Um, not jam my inbox. Um, there, there are only, listen to me, listen to me, there are only a handful of passages in the Bible that speak directly to homosexuality. Only a handful. When I say handful, specifically, there's only five passages in the entire Bible that speak to homosexuality. Only five. Now, you, 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 you got to understand the Bible has a lot more to say about lying. It has a lot more to say about heterosexual unfaithfulness. It has a lot more to say about money and the misuse of it. it has a lot more to say about pride. It has a lot more to say about a number of other things by sheer, sheer number of verses and passages than it does about homosexuality. And the message from that is simply this, and I, I want you to hear me on this. The Bible is not fixated on homosexuality. The Bible is not fixated on homosexuality. It is not what the Bible is all about. Now, don't hear me. Don't, don't blink out on me here. Don't, don't, don't say that Crawford says that somehow or another it's a minor issue. No, because I'm going to get ready to change that in a second here. But what I'm trying to say to you is this. The Bible proportionately puts the sin where it needs to be placed. You, you're, no, you, 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 you're no more holy. You, you got out of your car and you looked at the other man's wife and lusted after her as you walked in these front doors and somebody's in the gay community. Excuse my frankness there, but that's, that's the whole emphasis here. Now, having said that, what the Bible does say, what these five passages do say about homosexuality is extraordinarily clear. Extraordinarily clear. There, there, there's no room to question what is meant in these texts. If you, if you believe in a literal, historical, grammatical interpretation of the Scriptures, these five passages, there's no equivocation, there's no, there's no indirectness here. It is very, very clear. And let me just click off. I don't have time to walk through to, to, to read all the text here. Obviously, I'm not going to do that, but let me just summarize the five passages. The first passage is Genesis chapter 19. It's the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. 
And the message there is that God takes sexual sin very seriously. Takes it very seriously. Technically, they would not repent and they refused and they kept coming after uh, the men and it it was just rampant. So God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. The second passage is Leviticus chapters 18 and 19. In those two passages, there is the meticulous prohibition of all homosexual acts, including consensual homosexual activity. Including consensual homosexual activity. The third passage is Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. Now, this is one in which uh, the gay community would, would interpret a different way, and I'll just say it and then explain it. Romans 1, 18 to 32, homosexuality is called unnatural, unnatural. And so if you've ever listened to some of the debates on this text and there's a Bible, this, this kind of thing, and whatever about what the Bible says about home, they will camp on this text and say, well, of course, but what I'm doing is natural. I have no desire for, opposite, for the opposite sex. I have same-sex attraction. I was born this way. I have this desire. God made me this way, and because God made me this way, this is the natural way for me to express that. The only problem is, is that they hijack the word natural out of his context because he's not talking about uh, what feels natural to us. In context, he's talking about creative order. In other words, the fixed way of things in creation. It's unnatural because, because, because male and female have been created, and this was not a part of the fixed order. He's not talking about whether or not it feels good for me to do this or it feels natural for me to, 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 to have a sexual relationship with another man or another woman, that kind of thing. But, but, but he's talking about creative order. And it's unnatural because God did not create that. The fourth passage is 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 10. We just read that, and here the emphasis there is that homosexual sin is serious but not unique. That's the reason why it's listed with all of these other sins. It is serious, but it is not unique. The continued practice of all sin is an indication that there is not an authentic relationship with Christ. That is the point that Paul is underscoring there. If you keep lying and there's no guilt and no no sense of repentance or remorse, uh, it's an indication you never did have a relationship with Christ. And so it is with homosexuality. You keep doing this and there's no repentance, there's no change, it's an indication that there isn't a relationship with Christ. And Paul sort of says a similar thing in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, which is the fifth text, and that is that homosexuality does not conform to the lives Christians are now to lead. There's a whole growing segment um, of, of, of churches that would essentially believe a lot of what we believe except around sexuality. The whole growing segment, whole growing segment. But what Paul says here, uh, it's a contradiction in terms to say that you are a believer, a follower of Christ, and even though you can give us all the doctrinal statements and lines of agreement, but to practice homosexual behavior. It's inconsistent 
with a relationship with Christ. So the first question is, is homosexuality wrong? Well, yes. Now, in context, there's only five texts. God's not fixated on homosexuality, but what he says about it is abundantly clear. And that the answer consistently, whether it's back in the Old Testament in Genesis or whether it's over in 1 Timothy chapter 1, consistently the answer is that it is wrong. Behavior is wrong. Which raises the second question. Did God make me this way? Did God make me this way? You're going to be surprised perhaps at something that I say here, but I want to read Genesis chapter 1, go back to the very beginning. Genesis chapter 1, beginning at verse 26 through 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Now here you have it. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. And to be emphatic, he says, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on, on the earth. You know, you ask me, uh, could someone be born gay? And I might surprise you. Yeah. But the, the difference is this. Hear me on this. Inclination is not identity. When the Bible speaks of identity, it's not talking about what we feel we should be, but identity in the Bible is declarative. What do you mean by that? It is outside of ourselves. It's not who I feel I want to be or the temptations that I have or my bent towards certain behavior or my desires, no matter how strong they are. In the Bible, identity is declarative. It comes outside of us. God declared who we should be, male or female, and made us that way. I would even say, parenthetically, from from a spiritual component, this is also true in Romans 6 from a spiritual uh, point of view. Identity is always declarative. Um, God speaks in terms of what he's declared us to be, and tells us that our behavior needs to match what he's declared us to be. Romans 6 says that we we are in Christ, that we're complete in him, and that we're to reckon ourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to right. Do we sin? Yes. But he says, no, your identity is this. And so you behave consistent with what's been declared. And this is a huge point. This is a huge point. If you miss this point, then you'll allow the culture to hijack us. It is not the strong urges and the strong feelings and the strong inclinations that I have or or the bents that I have. Can you be born with that? Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if they found a a, a gene. I I don't think we need to have that argument any longer. At a certain point, I think that's irrelevant. Uh, Let let me... me, uh, 
Let me quote Sam, uh, Sam Allaby. Sam Allaby is a pastor from the UK who struggles with same-sex attraction. And he's written a very helpful little book entitled, Is God Anti-Gay? I love this guy's transparency and honesty. He struggles with this. He hasn't yielded, but he struggles with it, and he struggled with it his whole life. And thank God, he's a blessing to all of us here. Allaby makes this observation. He says, Desires for things God has forbidden are a reflection of how sin has distorted me, not how God made me. We, 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 have, we, we don't have a big enough appreciation of the devastation of sin in every aspect and area of our lives and humanity, even to our desires. It is not just the actions, it's the proclivities, it's the bents, it's all of that that's been affected by the fall. And if you don't appreciate that, you'd always be managing and massaging behavior or changing what you see based upon how you feel or where you are. When we say that we are anything other than what God has declared us to be, we're guilty of mistaken identity. Yes, you have those desires. Don't, don't deny it. Don't deny it. I'm going to talk about that a little bit later. Yes, they're fierce. They're powerful. But did God make me that way? Is that, is that what God said I am? Is that my identity or is that my struggle? And have I sanitized my struggle to make it my identity? We are not what we're drawn to or what has happened to us. As painful as it might be, as painful as it might be, we are what God intended us to be and what God is calling us to be. That's who we are. Now, this leads to the third question. And I suppose I've already answered this question because based upon these other two foundational things, then, you know, if, if you see clearly those five texts of Scripture and what God says clearly about homosexuality, and then what he says about identity and who we are, then the issue of gay marriage is almost a moot question. Well, let me raise it anyway, and I'll just say a few things and move on. Then what about gay marriage? Well, let's look at the vision for marriage. Genesis chapter 2, consistent with male-female motif and what he's created in um, the very beginning, the highest of all of his creation, male and female. Adam is alone and he brings Eve to her, to him. And beginning in verse 21, it says, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This is this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. 
And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. It would be very easy for me to get hijacked in this text here because this is rich with implications. The very nature of marriage is anchored in sexuality, not in desire. The very nature of marriage is defined by male and female. The very nature of marriage is defined by opposite sex. And I, please, I'm not being lurid or perverse here. The expression becoming one flesh is not an indirect reference to genitalia and how men and women are created for each other. And I'll just stop there. I think that there are five implications here. Um, uh, the nature of marriage, number one, is a union of male and female. God takes a woman and brings her to the man and establishes that. Number two, it's for procreation and multiplication. The sperm of a man uniting with the seed of a woman. New life grows. That's the order of creation. Number three, it models and affirms roles. There are distinct roles from the very beginning that, that belong to maleness and femaleness. That's to be modeled, which kisses the fourth one, and that it is models and affirms sexuality. Definition of sexuality is to be modeled from one generation to the next. And ultimately, it's a portrait, a holy portrait, the ultimate illustration in human history of what intimacy with God looks about and what redemptive, a redemptive relationship with the person and work of Jesus looks like. That's why he says in Ephesians chapter 5, it's like, it's, like, it's like a picture of Christ's relationship with his church. And I would argue, if I had a little bit more time here, that the very, the very nature of maleness and femaleness coming together says something about the holiness of God. The fourth question, well, can I change? Can I change? I'm going to go to an interesting text here, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul underscores his struggle with this thorn in the flesh, and, and I know that uh, we, some of us here have read this many times, but I, I want you to listen to what Paul says here. Because I think it grabs a lot more of the heart of the issue that we're talking about right now than some of us care to acknowledge or admit. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning at verse 7, says, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me. Don't, don't, don't go past those words to harass me. We're not talking about your garden variety temptation here. We're not talking about uh, just a little subtle urge that I can manage. We're talking about, we're talking about a devastating need, an issue, a messenger from Satan to harass me to keep me from becoming conceited. God used it there. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about the, this, that it should leave me. 
But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I am so glad Paul did not identify his thorn in the flesh. Don't don't spend time trying to figure out what it is. It could be anything. And again, I don't mean to sound perverse, but it, it could be, it could be that Paul struggled with same-sex attraction. We don't know. Absolutely don't know. And by the way, he, he sought it three times, and uh, with, he had apostolic authority. For him to ask God to do something three times and God says no is unbelievable. Paul never, ever, ever got away from his moment-by-moment need to press into the grace of God for strength to fight this fight, whatever it was inside of him. It was a struggle. And yet he found hope. He didn't yield to it. He didn't, didn't give in to it. He found hope in God's sustaining and conquering grace. About a year or so ago, I read a little book entitled Washed and Waiting by Wesley Hill. Wesley Hill struggles with uh, n- not just same-sex attraction, but he struggles with powerful urges to uh, act on those attractions, let's just say. He's battled with this all the way through high school and in college. He's given us a wonderful book. The book is Washed and Waiting. Talks about his current struggle. And I just couldn't help but think of 2 Corinthians chapter 12. How he says moment by moment he has to trust the grace of God to help him not to give in. And he talks about how hard it is and how painful it is. You see, God can deliver us just like that if he wants to. That's true. That's the reason why, and you know, you might get on me about this, but you know, this reparative therapy and all these other things that have been tried, that one-dimensional approach, God doesn't always use that because God doesn't always take these things away, these urges away, these desires away. He doesn't always do that. But what he does is he eclipses them by the power of the cross and by the presence of Jesus who walks with us in the midst of that pressure and that temptation and that pain and those urges and those desires. And don't look at me so strange because some of you struggle with pornography. Some of you struggle with other issues and you know exactly what I'm talking about. God keeping us and God God helping us. This week, Tim and I were meeting with Bill Ibsen uh, Uh, talking about the series, and he made this observation. This is a very important observation. He says, he said that our biggest need is not to be delivered from a particular sin or desire, but to be reckoned as righteous. Now, what Bill is not saying by that observation is that, that we should yield to sin. What he is saying by that is, look, our greatest need is to be reckoned as righteous in Christ so we can tap into the power of the risen Savior 
to moment by moment deal with the issues in our lives. This is the reason why. Listen to me, church. This is the reason why. This is the reason why I've had a change in my thinking over the last four or five years. Be very careful that we do not lose the gospel in our social engagement. You can win the war. You can win the culture war. You can win the issue. You can win the battle, but still not be transformed. Now, again, I'm not saying don't engage in culture. We should engage in culture, but we've got to hold the cross high. Listen, listen. The greatest need that our gay neighbors have, the greatest issue that they struggle with, is not their sexuality. Their greatest issue that they struggle with is their unbelief. And again, that's the reason why God just said, gave five passages. Whatever the sin du jour may be, if you don't believe and turn to Christ for his sufficiency, we will all go to hell. If we really believe that gay people could be transformed by Christ, we wouldn't talk about them in such dismissive and even hurtful ways. We wouldn't let our language and demeanor like I was at the teller's window. Communicate a lack of value. Now, we cannot change or transform people. Only God can do that. But God is relentless in his love for us. And I want you to hear me on this. I want you to hear me on this. His love is a transforming love. It identifies with who we are, but it doesn't allow us to stay where we are. Hear me. God's love in the Scripture demands change. God's love in the Scriptures demands transformation. It is not a pampering love. It is not a sentimental love. Yes, it is unconditional. Yes, it is totally accepting. You want to hear, yeah, 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 hear me say, say some things in a second. It is, it is all of that. It is all of that. But God's love uh, um, uh, expresses movement and energy toward deliverance and help and redemption and change and wholeness. We don't help people. When we affirm them in behavior that's not right without speaking up and sharing what is right. All affirmation without the appropriate sharing of truth is to solidify people in disobedience and give them a false sense of hope. And then the fifth question is this What about love and community? What about love and community? The book of Hosea in the Old Testament is a fascinating book. Uh, it's not even PG-13. It's got a little R stuff in that book. Hosea married a whore. And his marriage was a portrait 
of the pursuant love of God for the nation of Israel. Despite her unfaithfulness to Hosea, despite the many one-night stands and lovers that she had, he didn't give up on her. He kept pursuing her and pursuing her and pursuing her. It's a picture of God's unfailing redemptive love that looks past where we are and the messes that we're in and sees what we could be. I think in principle form, in Christological form, in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, that's what Paul says. Now listen to that verse. Listen to it. Listen to it. He says, this is astonishing to me that God demonstrates his love toward us. Hear me on this. Hear me on this. God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet and still sinners, while we were sleeping in a bed next to a woman that wasn't our wife, while we were doing nasty things in Piedmont Park, and that while we were yet in the mess of our sin, Christ died for us. And so if there's love and community, it is attached to the gospel. In other words, the message of the gospel is that God comes to get us, makes us right with himself, and places us in community to help us to be whole. And that's that last piece that we as Christians struggle with. What does it mean when someone is redeemed from a sordid lifestyle, from stuff that we find not so very tasteful, from backgrounds that don't line up to where we live and the square footage that we have. What, what, what does that mean? And yet that's the gospel. God comes to get us. Makes us right with himself. And places us in community. Unconditional love means that despite our condition, God loves us. And is in constant pursuit of us so that, here we have it, we might change. Remember, God's love means change. God's love means change. He doesn't just come after us so that we sit down and have a nice, wonderful talk over Starbucks and, and he weep with us about, oh, I, I feel your pain. I know you're struggling with this sin and I know how def- devastating it is, this kind of thing, but I've heard you. That's not God's love. Yeah, he might do, he might do that, but he wants to change that in us. So he comes and he pursues us so that we might change our minds about ourselves, about our sin, and about God, and that we will change as he works in us. As he works in us. You see, don't believe this lie that is repeatedly told us by the culture repeatedly told us by the culture, and I hear people around here believe in that nonsense. It's astonishing how we believe this in the church. And that is that if you love me and accept me, you will endorse my behavior. Where in the world do you find that? You see, we, we can accept people for who they are, but we don't have to accept what they do. You can accept people for who they are, but you don't have to accept what they do. 
Rosaria Butterfield wrote this book that really is an amazing book called The Secret Life of an Unlikely Convert. I'm almost done. And she was talking about her struggle. She's a, she's a, she was a lesbian. In fact, she was the uh, um, head of women's studies at Syracuse University, uh, a brilliant woman, one of the youngest department heads of a major research university in the country. And she talks about in the early chapters of her books her, her, her struggle with Christians and her problem that she had with Christians. And listen to what she says. This ouches a little bit, but I'm afraid it's true all too often. Look at this on the screen. She says, here's one of the deepest ways Christians scared me. The lesbian community was home, and home felt safe and secure. The people I knew the best and cared about were in that community. And finally, the lesbian community was accepting and welcoming, while the Christian community appeared exclusive, judgmental, scornful, and afraid. No need in getting defensive, because there's a lot of truth to what she said. But as the book goes on and her story goes on, things change. I'll tell the story and be done. So here you have Rosaria Butterfield, uh, celebrated, brilliant, being sought out all over the country. She's a genius. Uh, um, she, 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 would, she would just make it her delight to mess up these young Christian students coming into her required classes there and just dismantle their mindset and their worldviews. That was part of the fun that she had, very hostile toward Christians. Well, back in the late, nine, uh, late 90s, uh, Promise Keepers came to Syracuse, and they had this big men's rally and this kind of thing, and all thousands of guys were there. And so she was incensed, obviously, and so she decides to write this op-ed for the, the newspaper there, and she just blasted Promise Keepers, you can imagine. Male domination all over again and condescending and all this, all, all, the, all the garden variety nonsense that they said about that, and they just, she just put it out there. Well, it galvanized a lot of Christian community, and so she gets this ton of, of mail. And as she says in the book, she gets, most of the mail was like um, bordering on hate stuff and just reaction and just blasting her, and, you know, and, and most of it didn't even make much intellectual sense. It was just an emotional response, and they weren't taking on her arguments. And so she, she got a pile of that stuff. And she just took that and threw it in the trash. However, she got this one letter. Got this one letter from this pastor. <clears throat> and she didn't know what to do with it. He wrote her this letter, and his reasoning was compelling, as he wrote. It was dripped with kindness, though. Wasn't dismissive whatsoever. It touched her heart. She couldn't. She couldn't kind of like dismiss him. And then at the end of the letter, he said that uh, if you would be interested in uh, carrying on these conversations, we'd love for you to stop by our house late on Sunday afternoons, and my wife and I will feed you, and we'd love to just interact with you. She kept that letter on her desk for weeks. 
She said a couple of times she threw it in a trash can and then she went and fished it out and put it back on her desk. And so finally she said, well, what have I got to lose? Now another one of these Christians, I'll call him, meet with him, it'll be all over. So she calls him and comes over that Sunday afternoon. And to her surprise, they were normal people. <laughs> they loved her. Uh, and she kept coming back. She says that they would make her angry because he wouldn't back away from what he really believed and he would justify what he believed. But they treated her with respect and dignity and kindness. And this went on for two years. She says she would get up on Sunday morning, get out of the bed next to her as a lesbian lover. And she would get in her car and go to the church and drive around the parking lot wanting to go inside the church but not knowing whether or not they would embrace her. Did that for several Sundays. Then finally one Sunday, she did. And she says to her surprise, she found a community that loved her, that didn't judge her, and God began to just melt all of that away. Now, two and a half years into this, she surrendered her heart and life to Jesus. And by the way, the rest of the story is she's now married to a pastor and has a family. But God did a work in her heart and life. I, I want to say something to us here. Um, you all know me. I, you know... I am who I am, and I believe in truth, and I'll die for the truth of this book. And I don't think we need to back away from speaking truth to our culture. But we have some, uh, we have some ways to go. Uh, I want you to understand, while Philip was leading the Ethiopian eunuch to Christ, the Apostle Paul was killing Christians. And I want to say this to you, and please don't laugh because I don't mean this humorously, but I, I intentionally thought about what is one of the strongest ways I can say this, so here it is. I want you to hear me on this. The next Billy Graham could currently be a drag queen. The next John Piper could be that young man, that young teller in the bank. So what I'm saying to all of us is this. Don't let any issue eclipse the power of the cross to transform people. And let's have hearts of love that engage people. You can love fearlessly and not back away from what you believe. You can do that. You can embrace people different than you and hold the line in terms of what you believe. The gospel's not that fragile. But love them we must. A little long today. Some suggestions, reach out and step toward people, particularly those in the gay community. Step toward them. Don't step away from them. Reach out. Remember your own fallenness and struggles. That helps me immensely. 
None of us are the fourth members of the Trinity. We've got stuff in us. Let's remember our own fallenness. Thirdly, point to the transforming love and forgiveness and sufficiency of Jesus. Hallelujah. That he is able and he's changed us. And the last one is that we need to nurture and disciple them. When they come here, and they've come to Christ, we need to walk with them. We need to help. Somebody walk with us. Let's stand together. Church, pray, pray for us. Pray for fellowship. Pray for me. Pray for our leaders. We, we, we need to be more than just talking heads when it comes to the gospel. There's got to be a lot of gospel, compassion, heart, authenticity about us. We can't just be celebrating the evangelical industry phase of dominance. We got to be his hands of hope and deliverance wherever we're scattered. Amen? Amen. I'm going to ask the elders and, and uh, staff members in this service if you're here to come up and Stephen ministers if you'd like someone to pray with you we'll do that father thank you so much for the grace of God thank you father for the privilege of serving this great people thank you for the journey that you have us on lord we we want to we want to lovingly engage our culture and we want to lovingly say things lord we don't want to back away from what we believe um But Father, we pray that you will lead us and guide us and show us how to be salt and light and show us how to love, show us how to give hope. Show us, Lord Jesus. And may people who are turned off to our message, may may it not be because the package was condescending or dismissive. God, I pray that you will just set us free and use us. Now dismiss us, we pray. May we know the joy of your presence in Jesus' name. Amen.